0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com/premium. It only costs five dollars a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash gold, all lowercase. Global financial markets finished the first trading week of the new year pretty much the way they ended the last trading week of the old year. With the new trends that I've been talking about clearly in motion, and that is the rotation from growth to value, from domestic to international, from developed to emerging markets, and into precious metals mining stocks. Taking a look at the major markets, everything finished the week on a strong note. The Dow Jones Industrials closing up 2.1% on the day. That was a 700-point move. The gain on the week, though, just 1.5%. So all those gains and then some happening on Friday. S&P 500, a bit stronger on the day, up 2.3%, and even stronger on the week, moving up 3.5%. And that was the biggest gainer of the major averages. The Russell 2000, almost up as much on Friday, up 2.25%, but just 1.8% on the week. The worst performer of the week was the best performer of the day, and that's the NASDAQ, up 2.6%, but up just under 1% on the week. And I think the rally in the tech stocks today was more short covering than anything else. So I expect these stocks to resume their declines next week. In fact, some of the big names made new 52-week lows today, like Tesla, for example, but then there was some short covering and caused the stock to rally back. But other names that had been weak had rather small rallies. Take a look at the ARK Innovation ETF, which was up 1.1% on the day, underperforming the NASDAQ once again. But on the week, the ARK Innovation ETF is up just 0.4%. So the stocks that were weak in 2022 continue to be weak in 2023, And that's exactly what I predicted last year. Most of the analysts were saying to buy the stocks that were beaten down in 2022. And I think those stocks are going to get beaten down even more in 2023. So you don't want to buy them. If anything, you want to sell the rallies if you still own them. But what you do want to buy are the gold and silver mining stocks. I was talking about this a lot on my podcast last year. In fact, I mentioned on my last podcast of the year that I thought we would have a strong first week of the year in the gold stocks, especially since gold itself ended the year very strong, but I didn't really see any buying in the gold stocks. They were flat, and so I thought that meant that traders were not anticipating a big up move in gold, and I thought they were wrong, and that we would surprise a lot of people with the strength of gold, early in the year, and that's exactly what's happened. Gold was up better than $30 an ounce today, up about $33, closing at 1867. We got as high as 1870, I think, intraday, and that's up about 2.4% on the week. But the real gains were in the mining stocks. The GDX up 3% today, up 10% now in the first week of the year, And the juniors, even better, up 3.5% today, 10.8% on the week. So, so far this year, the best performing sector of the market is precious metals mining. And there's an old saying, so goes the first week of January, so goes the year. And I think we've pretty much set the tone for the rest of the year. I do expect the gold and silver mining stocks to be the best performance. In fact, it could be one of the best years ever for gold and silver mining stocks. And again, I also think it could be one of the worst years ever for the U.S. dollar. And if I'm right about the dollar having one of its worst years, then it makes sense that gold and silver mining stocks would have one of their best years. Now, so far on the week, the dollar index is actually up about a half a percent. But it was a very volatile week that ended on a down note. In fact, the dollar got clobbered today. Dollar index down better than 1%. Intraday, though, it did get back above 105 before getting clobbered after the jobs numbers came out. I'll get to those momentarily. But we ended up closing below a 104 handle at 103 spot 923. So technically... We are looking very weak for the dollar, and I am expecting a major breakdown pretty much any day. And if we do get a breakdown in the dollar, we're going to get a bigger breakout in gold and an even bigger breakout in these mining stocks. But I want to turn my attention to some of the economic data that sparked today's big rally, both in the equity markets and the precious metals market, and that also sent the dollar into a tailspin But before I get into today's data, I want to talk about a couple of data points that came out since the podcast I recorded on Tuesday. One was the ISM number for December, so the final month of the year for ISM manufacturing. And this number came out a little bit better than the consensus, which had estimated 48.1, which is a weak number. Anything below 50 represents contraction. And we got a weak number, just not quite as weak as analysts had expected. 48.4 48.4 was the number, but it was still weaker than November, which had come out at 49. So it's a weak number and it's a weak trend. Now, also on Wednesday, we got the ADP employment report, which was a precursor to the official jobs report that came out this morning. And it set this tone because that report was much stronger than expected. They were looking for 145,000 jobs created. Instead, 235,000 jobs were created, and the prior month's 127,000 number was revised up to 182,000. Now that so-called strong jobs report actually sent the stock market tanking and the dollar soaring because it was perceived as being a catalyst for the Fed to be more aggressive in its fight against inflation because after all, so many people think the way you win a war against inflation is by putting people out of work. And with more people getting jobs, the Fed is moving backwards and it's further away from its goal, so it has to fight harder to destroy those jobs. But in reality, you don't reduce inflation by putting people out of work. In fact, you accomplish the opposite because when people aren't working, they're not productive, so you have less supply, And they still have demand because they get unemployment benefits and welfare and food stamps and things like that. So you get less supply. You still have demand and therefore you have rising prices. What the Fed really needs to do is to keep people employed. We need more people being more productive. But what those employed people have to do is reduce their spending. So we don't want them to stop working. They got to keep working. They got to make stuff. They just got to not spend everything they earn. They got to take some of that money and save it. That's how you reduce inflation with higher interest rates is that you discourage people from spending. And so you reduce demand and you encourage them to save. And that helps increase supply because the savings lead to investment, which increases supply. You don't just try to put people out of work. Now, the reason people are losing jobs is because rising interest rates are impacting the economy because it's so levered up, and consumers are so levered up. When interest rates go up, that immediately diminishes their capacity to spend because now they're spending more on interest. But the problem is credit card debt is still at record highs, savings are at record lows. So despite the fact that the Fed has increased interest rates, it hasn't changed the behavior of Americans. They're still borrowing and spending like there's no tomorrow, and they're not saving anything for tomorrow. That's why the Fed is really making no headway in its feigned fight against inflation. It needs to raise interest rates up far more than it has, not to put people out of work, but to get people who are working to reduce their spending and increase their savings. But because all these jobs are a function of the bubble, people are losing jobs as a result of it, except They're not unemployed, they're losing good jobs and they're replacing them with crappy jobs. And I will get to that in a minute. The point I'm making here is you don't raise interest rates to create unemployment or slow the economy. You raise interest rates to slow spending and increase savings, which actually leads to greater economic growth as the savings of those who are under consuming gets invested to expand plant equipment and leads to greater production of goods, which leads to lower prices of those goods, and the fact that fewer people are spending reduces demand in the present for those goods. That's what needs to be done. But none of that is happening yet, so we know the Fed is losing its battle against inflation. Now, some people think it's winning because they've looked at a temporary decline in commodity prices, and they think that means the worst is over. No, that is a transitory decline. We are just consolidating for the next leg up, in commodity prices and some people are looking at housing prices yes they're going down and in fact they have a long way to fall but that does not mean inflation is coming down because people don't buy houses they buy monthly payments and those are going up and it's not just mortgage payments that are going up it's taxes it's insurance it's utilities it's maintenance everything about home ownership is getting a lot more expensive so the inflation problem is getting worse but in any event that hotter than expected ADP employment report set the tone for the non-farm payroll report that came out this morning. And I think it took some of the sting out of that report because that report also came out stronger than expected, but not nearly as much stronger as the ADP number. And so I think the market breathed a sigh of relief that the number wasn't even stronger. And that's why we got this big rally. The consensus was for a gain of 200,000 non-farm payroll jobs, and we got 223,000, so a bit of a beat, 23,000 more, but we revised the prior month down from 263 to 256. The unemployment rate, though, plunged. It went down from 3.7% down to 3.5%. In fact, they revised down last month's 37 to 3.6%. And then the December number was 3.5, so a lower unemployment rate that would normally spook the markets, except what happened to soothe the markets' fears was wages. We had a much smaller than expected increase in average hourly wages. They were supposed to go up by 0.4, and instead they rose by 0.3. And in fact, they took the prior month's initial report of up 0.6, and they revised that down to just up 0.4. And the year over year average hourly earnings were up just 4.6. And that was versus a consensus estimate of up five. And the prior month was revised down from up 5.1 to 4.8. And in fact, hours work went down from 34.4 to 34.3. So people are working fewer hours than they thought, and they're earning less for those hours. Than the market thought. Now, why was this perceived as being good news? Well, because the markets think that this takes some of the pressure off the Fed. After all, if they were worried about wage price spiral, if wages are not rising as much, then maybe they're not going to push inflation up or push prices up. And so maybe the Fed doesn't have to raise rates as much or keep them that high for that long. Except that's all a bunch of BS because rising wages don't cause inflation. Rising wages are caused by inflation. In other words, inflation causes wages to rise, not the other way around. The problem is wages are rising more slowly than other prices. So a slowdown in wage growth doesn't mean inflation is cooling off. It just means that workers are falling further and further behind because their wages are not rising as much As prices. In fact, this is one of the biggest declines in real earnings that American workers have experienced. Because real wages are falling, because prices are rising much faster on a year over year basis than wages. And that actually helps explain part of this so called strong jobs number. Because if you actually look at the jobs again by comparing the establishment survey to the household survey, What you'll find is that during the month of December, there was actually a net loss of 1,000 full-time jobs. There were 1,000 fewer people employed full-time in December than there were in November. How could there be 223,000 jobs created if fewer people have full-time jobs? That's easy. The jobs that were created were part-time jobs. And in fact, if you look at the household survey, at the total number of people with multiple jobs, that went up about 370,000 on the month. And the total increase in part-time workers was 679,000. That is a huge jump in people with part-time jobs, but the multiple job number was 370,000. That exceeds the total number of jobs gained on the month of 235,000. And what that basically means is that All of these new jobs that were created during the month of December were created for people who already had jobs. Either they had one or two part-time jobs and they got another part-time job, or they had a full-time job and they went and took on a part-time job. Now, why are so many people who already have jobs needing a second job or a third job? It's because real wages are falling and they have no other way of making up the difference. Now for a while, workers were making it up borrowing. That's why their savings have been depleted and their credit card debt is maxed out. But at some point, there's no savings left and you have no more room on your credit cards. So how do you pay the rent? How do you put food on the table in an inflationary environment? Well, you go out and get another job. That's what's going on. And that does not mean the economy is strong. When you have all these people who are already working who don't wanna work anymore, but they're forced to work more, that is not sign of a strong economy. This is a weak economy. In a strong economy, you only need one job. Most people prefer leisure to work. So if somebody has to give up their leisure and take on a part-time job, so they have to work instead of having the time off, but they don't actually have any more purchasing power because their part-time job simply restores the purchasing power that they've lost at their full-time job in fact a lot of people are losing full-time jobs and they're replacing them with two three or four part-time jobs they're trying to hobble together a career with multiple part-time jobs that collectively might not even pay as much as they used to earn but that's the only way they could earn a living now of course you have a lot of americans who aren't even working at all they've dropped out of the labor force that's why the labor force participation rate is so low although it did tick up a bit it was originally reported at 62.1% in the prior month and it moved up to 62.2 and now it's 62.3 in december and so what i think is happening here is some of the retired people who weren't working because they were trying to enjoy their retirement they're having to come out of retirement because they can't afford to buy food or they can't afford to pay the electric bill or whatever. Everything is getting expensive. In fact, I feel very badly for retirees. A lot of people are just worried about workers because their paychecks aren't keeping pace with inflation. Well, at least they have a paycheck. At least they're working and they can get a raise. A lot of people who are retired, they're on fixed incomes. And even if their Social Security went up, they have a lot of other income sources that aren't going up. And I particularly feel badly for retired people who are trying to do the right thing by reducing their risk. And traditionally, as you get older, you want to get out of your stocks, for example, and put more money into cash or bonds or annuities. I have that happen with a lot of my clients. They call up and, hey, I'm getting older now. I want to take less risk. So I want to cash out that stock portfolio you're managing, and I wanna just have the money in cash because I'm older now. And what I always have to point out is the biggest risk is inflation. And inflation is gonna wipe out a lot of older people. A lot of retired people are gonna have to come out of retirement early because their money is gonna retire long before they do. Because if you are a conservative investor and you're just wanting to conserve your cash, that does nothing if the cash you're conserving loses its purchasing power. You don't want to conserve cash. You want to conserve purchasing power. And I think the best way to do that is with equities, with dividend-paying stocks, stocks outside the United States that are not overpriced, that are trading for fair values or even underpriced, where you can get a good dividend yield, where those dividends can rise with inflation because you're investing in companies that sell goods and services that consumers need. And if the price goes up, they'll keep buying. They'll just cut back on something else to afford the things that they need. And that's why you don't want to invest in companies that sell things that people don't need, that they buy with the money they have left over after they buy the stuff they need. That's the discretionary spending. I don't want that. I want to sell things that consumers have to buy not the things that they only buy with the money they have left over after they buy what they have to buy. Because in an inflationary environment, they're not going to have anything left over. That's the problem. Of course, the other problem is the way the financial community was reacting to the jobs number because they still think it's strong because more jobs were created than they thought. They're not looking at the nature of these jobs, the fact that they're low paying and part time and the fact that the people who were working these jobs would rather not have them. This is not a good thing when people who would prefer leisure are forced into employment because prices are rising so fast that it's the only way that they can keep pace. But also, people think that this means that inflation is easing up just because wage growth is paring back, and they're wrong. They have to look at what's going on at the Fed. Rates are still too low. And they have to look at what's going on at Congress. They're still spending like crazy. We passed that omnibus spending bill, massive new spending, no taxes to pay for it. How's it going to get paid for inflation? So the inflationary forces continue to build in the economy, even as more people are forced to accept low-paying jobs to make ends meet. But eventually, a lot of these low-paying jobs aren't even going to be there. That's going to be the problem. Right now, there are low-paying jobs available, and so people are able to take them. But as this recession gets worse, a lot of these employers are going to go out of business or are going to be cutting down their workforce. In fact, a lot of companies continue to announce layoffs, and more are coming. And so eventually, we're going to start to see a big increase in unemployment, and there's not going to be as many second and third jobs available, which is going to be very problematic for people who need the extra work and can't find it. You all know what that sound is by now. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling antique clocks or consumer electronics, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel from in-person POS systems to all-in-one e-commerce platforms. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. Shopify makes selling so simple that it allows you to put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. And I love how Shopify makes it so easy for anyone to successfully run a small business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com gold. All lowercase. Just go to shopify.com slash gold to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash gold. Now we also got some more economic data that confirms what I'm saying about a weak economy that came out later in the day. One was the factory orders for November, and this was supposed to come out at minus point seven. And that was gonna follow a 1% rise originally reported in October. Number one, we revised down October to up just 0.4. And the November number came out at minus 1.8, more than twice as bad as analysts had expected. In fact, the consensus range went from minus 0.3 to minus 1.6, and we exceeded the lower end of the range. So a very weak number, but an even weaker number was the December ISM index. This was supposed to come out at 55, which would have been a drop from the prior month's 56.5. Instead, we plunged all the way down to 49.6. We haven't seen a reading that low outside of the COVID shutdown. In fact, the range of estimates went from a low of 53 to a high of 56, and we blew through the low end, not only below 53, but below 50, indicating an economy in contraction. Circling back to the markets, while it was a very good week for gold and gold-related equities, Fool's Gold had a lot of problems, not so much Bitcoin itself, because that token managed to hold up on the week. Now, it didn't rally, or maybe it rallied just a little bit, but as I'm recording this podcast on Friday evening, it's still trading just below 17,000, which is about where it ended 2022. Now, a lot of people think that this stability in Bitcoin is a sign of a bottom. I don't think so at all. I mean, people have been thinking Bitcoin has bottomed the entire way down from nearly 70,000. Every time Bitcoin stops falling, the hodlers are convinced a bottom is in. And in fact, whenever there's a small rally off that bottom, they get very excited that Bitcoin's about to moon. Those hopes end up getting dashed, and that's what a bear market does. It slides a slope of hope. What I think is actually happening with Bitcoin is not base building, but consolidation of the previous down leg, preparing for the next leg down, which I think is going to take Bitcoin closer to 10,000 before we get a bounce. And then, of course, we'll get another decline. My guess is that we're going to fall below 5,000 before the end of the year, maybe we won't close below 5,000. Maybe we'll get yet another dead cat bounce. But clearly the bubble has popped and the air is coming out. It's just that most people are still in denial. But the real problems during the week, we're not in Bitcoin per se, but in the crypto industry as we continue to get the fallout from the FTX debacle. Because remember, all of these companies are interconnected. There's a lot of counterparty risk going on, and we're starting to see the buildup of a financial crisis within the crypto ecosystem. And this reminds me of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, which started with subprime mortgages. And when it initially started, everybody assumed it was contained to subprime. I knew that it wasn't, but the reason it started in subprime was that was the weakest link of the chain. And so it cracked first. It was the most speculative part of the mortgage market. Well, the financial crisis that is now going on in crypto, we're gonna see this in other parts of the economy. It's not gonna be caused by crypto because the subprime crisis didn't cause the overall financial crisis. It was the tip of that iceberg. There was gonna be a crisis in prime mortgages as well. It just happened a little later. And that's what's gonna happen with the US economy. It's the higher interest rates that ultimately sparked the financial crisis that we're seeing in Bitcoin because we already saw a bigger drop in the collateral for a lot of these loans, which were crypto. Well, crypto has collapsed. The market cap on cryptocurrencies has dropped from 3 trillion at a peak to under 800 billion and therefore a lot of loans are going bad. And also as people are losing confidence in these crypto exchanges, there's basically a run. People are trying to move their crypto off of these exchanges, and that's creating bigger problems because it's like a run on the bank. Except with normal banks, you don't have the run because you have the government insurance. So people are not worried. So they leave their money there because the government's got their back. Now, that's a problem because of those government guaranteed bank accounts. The banking system is inherently a lot riskier because banks take on all this extra risk because they know their customers don't give a damn and they don't give a damn because of the moral hazard of government insurance. But we don't have that in crypto. So a lot of people are playing it safe and they're trying to withdraw their money. That's a problem when a lot of these companies have loans and that crypto is collateral and now their customers want it back. So we're starting to see all this unraveling in that space. Look at what's going on with Gemini, which is owned by the Winklevoss twins. That is one of their companies. They had a subsidiary called Earn, where you can deposit your Bitcoin or other cryptos and earn interest. Well, how did they earn interest? Well, there were loans involved. I think they were loaning money To Genesis, which is owned by Barry Siebert's Digital Currency Group, it also owns the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Well, they loaned out money. I think they have exposure to FTX, so they lost a lot of money. So now they can't pay back the money they owe earned, and so Gemini is in trouble. They're all halting redemptions. Everybody is laying off staff. Genesis announced that they're getting rid of thirty percent of their staff. The whole industry is under intense pressure. In fact, the biggest shoe to drop this week, I think, were the huge losses at Silvergate Capital, which is a crypto bank out on the West Coast. And that stock dropped 30% on the week. And that includes a 27% rally that they had on Wednesday. Now that rally reversed on Thursday when the company reported this massive loss. I think they had 8 billion of their deposits gone. And they had to sell a lot of their assets at fire sale prices, although maybe in a few months they won't look like fire sale prices, but they lost so much money liquidating these assets that they more than wiped out all the profits that the bank made for the entire history the bank has been in business just in one year. The stock price is down better than 95% from where it was trading at its highs last year. So. What's going on in the crypto space is not only problematic for all the people that work there and who are losing their jobs there. And I predicted that this was going to happen. I also predicted that a lot of the people who are losing their jobs at Genesis or Silvergate, they're going to start selling their cryptocurrency because that's what they own. These guys drank the Kool-Aid. They worked for crypto companies because they believed in crypto. And because they believed in crypto, they put their money where their mouths were and they own it. Well, now in order to put food in their mouths, they're going to have to sell the crypto because the grocery stores don't want Bitcoin. They want dollars. And if you got Bitcoin and you want to eat, well, you got to sell your Bitcoin. Well, the problem is we are running out of people who are willing to buy Bitcoin. Either the fools have run out of money because they've already bought too much Bitcoin or we've run out of fools and there's nobody left to buy. While I'm on the topic of fools, though, look at what happened with Bed Bath & Beyond. That stock dropped 48% this week. It was already way down and it dropped another 48%. It closed at $1.31 because the company announced that they're about to file for bankruptcy. Now, Bed Bath & Beyond was one of these meme stocks. And in fact, it had another meme stock rally in August of last year. Even though this company was obviously in a lot of financial trouble, that didn't stop the meme speculators from buying it. And the price got all the way up to $30 a share in August of last year. And here it is less than six months later and the stock is almost below a dollar and headed for zero. So a lot of people who just mindlessly bought into this mania are now the bag holders. And it's not just bag holders in the meme stocks, it's bag holders in crypto. Everybody who does not sell is gonna be a bag holder. But the latest piece of crypto news came out yesterday when the attorney general for the state of New York announced that she had filed civil charges against Alex Mashinsky, who was the founder of Celsius. And New York is suing Mashinsky for fraud. They're claiming that he defrauded Celsius customers and that he didn't tell them about all the risk that he was taking with their deposits. He downplayed the risk. He represented Celsius as a conservative alternative to banks where the little guy can get in on all the money that the rich guys have been making. And he was taking care of the little guy. He was kind of like Robin Hood, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And all this was just a fraud. And so he's being sued for the billions of dollars that customers lost based on this fraud. And what's so interesting about this is the attorney general of New York is acting like she just discovered this, like, okay, it's a good thing we've got these regulators now that have finally discovered after the fact, because the company blew up months ago. Everybody already lost their money. And now, right, all the horses have long since left the barn, and now the regulators are rushing in to shut the door and say, you see, we're on the job. It's a good thing that we're here. We have discovered this fraud. And we're making these allegations. Except I uncovered the entire fraud on a live debate on the internet over a year ago in late 2021. I did a debate on Kitco, and I've talked about that on this podcast with Alex Mashinsky. And I didn't know anything about Celsius. And during the debate, he lets out that he's paying people interest on their Bitcoin, and he's even paying interest on gold. Something like 6% is the approximate rate. And I said, wait a minute, how are you paying interest on Bitcoin? Bitcoin doesn't generate any income. How are you paying interest? Well, we now know how he was paying interest. He was loaning out the Bitcoin and the people who borrowed the Bitcoin paid interest to Celsius. And then Celsius paid some of that interest to his customers. Obviously not all of it because Mashinsky wasn't running a charity. So if he was paying let's say 6% interest on Bitcoin, he was probably charging people 8% or 10% to borrow the Bitcoin. But obviously if somebody is borrowing Bitcoin and paying eight or 10% interest, they're taking a lot of risk. After all, why didn't those borrowers go to a traditional bank and get a loan at a much lower rate of interest? Because they probably couldn't get credit because they were very risky borrowers. They were so risky that the only one dumb enough to make them a loan was Celsius. So clearly in order to pay interest to depositors, he was taking a lot of risk. And I said on this debate, you must be taking an incredible amount of risk in order to pay these yields. And his response to me was, no, we're not taking any risk. And I said, well, of course you are. That You, you can't be telling the truth. You must be taking risk. And he was, because that's why everybody lost. Because the people who borrowed the Bitcoin weren't able to pay it back. And this was obvious. I could see it from a mile away. Plus, if you borrow the Bitcoin, what were these people doing with that Bitcoin? Maybe they were leveraging it. Maybe they were borrowing more money using the Bitcoin as collateral. And when everything collapsed, they lost that Bitcoin and then they had no ability to pay it back to Celsius, which had no ability to give it back to its customers, which is why the account was frozen. If you haven't seen this debate and you want to watch it, the entire 90-minute debate is still up on the Kitco website, so you can watch that if you've got 90 minutes. If you don't, I put up on my own YouTube channel 20 minutes of the highlights or the lowlights, depending on your perspective, of that debate. And I decided earlier today to release an even more condensed version under five minutes that highlights the allegations that have been made by the attorney general of New York that he defrauded his customers regarding the risk that he was taking with their deposits because he did it on this debate over a year ago. And by the way, I slipped in at the end a part about Kevin O'Leary. I had forgotten about that. But during this 90-minute debate, the moderator asked me when I was finally going to admit that I was wrong and change my mind on Bitcoin the way Kevin O'Leary did. And then I pointed out that he only changed his mind because he got paid off by a crypto company. And that company, of course, was FTX. So not only did I call out Alex Mashinsky for being a fraud, I called out Kevin O'Leary, too. One of the more significant aspects of what's going on with Celsius is also this week a court rule that the tokens that customers had deposited into their Celsius accounts, their Bitcoin or their other crypto, that those tokens were assets of Celsius. And Celsius customers are unsecured creditors. They are behind the bondholders, junior to them and other secure creditors. The same thing applies to other exchanges where people have accounts and have their cryptocurrencies on deposit. So this could also prompt more people to want to withdraw their crypto off of these exchanges because they're worried that the same thing that happened at Celsius is gonna to happen to them. Now, a lot of people were shocked to find this out. People thought that when they put money in a Celsius account, that's their account, that's their money. No, that's Celsius's money. You were giving your crypto to Celsius and they were doing whatever they wanted with it in order to generate the yield that Alex Mashinsky was claiming was low risk. Well, now he's being charged with defrauding customers because he claimed that high risk accounts were low risk. Well, they can win their case just based on playing this debate because he incriminated himself during the debate because he did exactly what he's being accused of doing. Of course, I knew that he was doing this more than a year ago. So why did it take regulators so long to figure this out? Why didn't they act sooner before so much money was lost? They never do. And of course, now they're going to claim this just proves we need more regulation. We don't need more regulation. The regulations that already exist are more than enough. Same thing with Sam Bankman-Fried. What did this guy do? He embezzled money. He committed fraud. He committed theft. These are crimes. They've been against the law since the beginning. So we don't need new laws, just enforce the laws that we already have. Because all these new laws that are going to come into existence, they're not going to stop crime. They're not going to stop fraud. All they're going to do is force the honest people to have to spend even more money complying with rules and regulations. It's going to force more people out of business. It's going to further consolidate the financial services industry. It's going to lead to lower quality. It's going to lead to higher prices. Because of all the regulations that already exist, there's so much more fraud now than there would be. If we had no SEC, if we had no FINRA, because of the cost of complying with all these rules and regulations, small investors are priced out of the market. No quality investment advisor or broker is gonna take a small account because you can't cover your costs. You lose money on the small accounts. So the small accounts are left on their own and they're far more likely to be victimized by scams. In fact, to the extent that there is a financial person who's willing to work with a small investor, is probably because he's ripping them off because that's the only way he can stay in business working with small investors. So you get the government, they come in and they actually end up protecting the criminals by putting a cloak of credibility around them. That's how Bernie Madoff was able to pull off his Ponzi scheme for so long because he had the SEC protecting it. He had FINRA protecting him. The reason that Ponzi scheme, the actual Ponzi fell apart so quickly Because there was no SEC, there was no FINRA. So the market put Ponzi out of business in less than a year. Yet Madoff is able to continue his Ponzi scheme for more than a decade. And as a result, a lot more people lost money in the regulated environment that Bernie Madoff was operating in than the free market environment that Ponzi was operating in. But the fact that I was able to figure out live in just a couple of minutes during a debate that Mashinsky was defrauding his customers by downplaying the risks that they were taking proves that we don't need more government. I was able to ferret it out right away. The regulators were asleep at the switch. In fact, what's even more ironic is while guys like Mashinsky were defrauding customers and while Sam Bankman-Fried was stealing from customers, what were all the regulators doing? They were investigating me. They spent two years investigating me, investigating my bank. There was a major investigation of my bank from the IRS and several other countries. I was investigated, FINRA. They were looking through all my bank accounts, everything I was doing, all my transactions. I was under a microscope from all sorts of government regulators for a couple of years and they found absolutely nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't break any rules. I didn't take any money from customers. Yet while they were wasting all their time investigating me and my bank, they were allowing the actual criminals to commit their crimes without any attention. They wait until after all the money is stolen, all the investors have lost their money, and then they come riding in as if, hey, we're here, we're the government, we're protecting you by charging all these people with crimes after they already stole all your money. Well, the free market does a much better job of making sure that your money never gets stolen in the first place, through competition, third-party verification, and reputation. I haven't really talked about what went on at my bank on this podcast yet, and I will eventually get into all the details. I'm just trying to keep it on the down low for now because A, I don't wanna interfere with the return of customer funds. I don't wanna slow it down. Now, it's already pissing me off that it's more than six months since the bank was put in the receivership for no reason, and nobody has been able to get their money. And nobody is more frustrated than I am. Of course, a lot of the customers are frustrated, but the people at Celsius, the people at Genesis, the people at FTX, they can't get their money because it was either lost or it was stolen. None of the money in my bank was lost or stolen. It's all right there. So it's government. That is preventing my customers from getting their money, not anything that I did wrong. In fact, everything that I did was right. I followed all the rules. I followed all the regulations. But even after my bank could no longer operate profitably because the media falsely accused it of laundering money and helping people evade taxes, of course, the media didn't write any articles accusing Sam Bankman fried of doing anything wrong or accusing Alex Mashinsky, but they wrote plenty of articles accusing me of doing all sorts of stuff wrong, even though I didn't do anything wrong. But because of all these false allegations, it was impossible for the bank to operate profitably as long as I owned it. So I arranged to sell the bank, and I had a buyer lined up that regulators first indicated they were gonna approve, because when you own a bank, you just can't sell it. You have to get the regulators to give the new buyer's permission to own it. So we had already signed the deal. Everything was done. It was just contingent on the regulators allowing the transaction. And if it would have gone through, I would have received the equivalent of about $25 million in cash and stock because the company that was buying me was soon to be publicly traded on the NASDAQ. And so I was getting some of the stock pre-IPO and I was getting a bunch of cash and the company was going to inject a lot of cash into the bank. And- capitalize it to a much greater degree than was required by law. I had capital in the bank, but the bank needed more capital. I was willing to contribute the capital myself, but the regulators told me, don't bother, the buyers are gonna put it in, and so just sit tight and wait for us to approve this change of control. In the meantime, there was plenty of cash in the bank, well in excess of what was owed to depositors, so everything was fine until all of a sudden, The rug was pulled out from under me and regulators decided to reject the sale and to put the bank into the equivalent of bankruptcy, claiming that it didn't have enough capital. But had they allowed the sale, it would have had plenty of capital. It would have had millions more in capital than it needed. Or they could have just allowed me to put the capital in myself because I offered to do it. And they said, no, we're not going to let you put more capital in. We're going to put your bank into bankruptcy for not having enough capital. But of course, they also could have allowed me to just shut down the bank because even if it didn't have enough capital, it wasn't bankrupt because the bank had no loans, it had no debt, and it had no past due bills. I had all the cash just sitting there. The opposite of what's going on with Sam Bankman Freed, I didn't touch a penny of customer money. I didn't loan any of my customer money out to anybody. It was all there. And so I could have sent everybody their money back six months ago, but I wasn't allowed to do that because the regulators decided to put my bank into the equivalent of bankruptcy to protect the customers who actually didn't need any protection. Had they not gotten any government protection, they could have all had their money back over six months ago. But because the government decided to step up and protect them, it's been more than six months and nobody's received a nickel. Also, if they had allowed the proposed sale to go through, every customer could have withdrawn every penny if they wanted to, Or they could have kept the money at the bank under new ownership and not only that but all the employees would have kept their jobs and i would have received 25 million dollars but instead the bank is shut down no customer can get their money all the jobs are lost and instead of getting 25 million dollars i got nothing and by the way the new buyers had intended to start doing loans which was something that i had never done and they were going to be making loans to local Puerto Rican businesses or homeowners. And so it was gonna introduce new credit into the Puerto Rican economy, more competition for the big banks, which would have benefited Puerto Rico by bringing down the cost of credit, making more credit available, and it would have been a viable tax paying employer in Puerto Rico. Instead, the whole thing is gone and eventually all of the money now trapped in the bank is gonna be returned to customers and be on deposit in jurisdictions outside of Puerto Rico, helping to benefit those economies rather than Puerto Rico. But I don't really wanna get into all the details because I don't wanna risk my speaking out about what happened to cause any extra delays in this process. So once all the customers get all their money, then I'll be in a better position to speak freely because I won't have to worry about any fallout for my customers. The other reason that I'm not really speaking frankly about what's going on is because I still have a lawsuit in Australia against the owners of 60 Minutes Australia who defamed me, who published all these lies about me, particularly in their 60 Minutes broadcast that resulted in massive losses at the bank. Not losses that were so great that my customers lost money. Customers didn't lose any money because I put enough of my own money into the bank to absorb all those losses. I always acted in the best interest of my customers and I made sure that there was millions of dollars in capital that was above what was owed to the customers. And so no bank could withstand a run, only my bank, because I was hundred percent reserve. Every single customer could have asked for their money back on the same day and I could have supplied it. But in order to do that, I had to keep injecting capital into the bank to cover the losses, the ongoing operating losses that were the result of the defamation. Because once the bank was accused of working with organized criminals and laundering money and evading taxes, I lost a lot of my ability to provide services because a lot of my counterparties wouldn't work with me anymore as they didn't want to be perceived as guilty by association. And so because I couldn't provide these services to my customers, I couldn't charge the customers for the services. And so my revenue went way down, but my expenses were extremely high. The biggest one being compliance. Most of the employees of the bank worked in the compliance department. Compliance costs a fortune. But if you don't have revenue to offset the overhead, you lose a lot of money. And that's why I decided to sell the bank because the bank needed a new name. It needed new ownership because it had to get out from under the stigma of me and being associated with me, given all the allegations that had been made against me by 60 Minutes Australia, and then they were picked up in other news outlets like the New York Times and a lot of others. I need to wait until I win my lawsuit against the parent company of 60 Minutes. Now I'm going to win the lawsuit because everything they accused me of doing was wrong. Everything that they accused the bank of doing, they were wrong. Now. Yes, the bank did get shut down, and they're trying to use that against me. 60 Minutes is claiming, oh, your bank got shut down. That proves we were right. No, the bank didn't get shut down for money laundering and tax evasion. The bank got shut down because it didn't have enough capital. That's what the regulators claimed. Well, they actually claimed it was insolvent and didn't have enough capital, but they later had to change their minds on the insolvency claim because we weren't insolvent. We were very solvent. But yes, technically, we didn't have enough capital because the regulators didn't allow me to put it in and they wouldn't allow the other company to buy the bank that was going to add new capital. They decided that putting the bank out of business and forcing the liquidation was a better alternative than allowing me to recapitalize it or a new buyer to recapitalize it. Now, I disagreed, but it wasn't my call. The regulators ultimately decide what happens and they decided on the liquidation. Now, it's my belief that the main reason that they made that decision was because of the false allegations of money laundering and tax evasion. Because if you look at the press conference that they held when they announced that they were putting my bank into receivership, which, by the way, I put that press conference up on my YouTube channel to prove that I didn't do anything wrong. They called this press conference to announce the closure of my bank, yet I put up their own press conference on my website because it proves that I didn't do anything wrong. That's how ridiculous this whole charade was. But the IRS agent that was there said that there was no doubt that what Osif did to my bank, forcing my bank out of business, sent a strong message to the world that Puerto Rico would not be a haven for tax evaders and money launders. Now, why were they sending that message when they knew firsthand that my bank didn't facilitate tax evasion or money laundering? Because if it did, at that press conference, they would have announced charges. Somebody at the bank would have been charged with committing a financial crime. There was a criminal investigation for more than two years and not a single person at the bank was charged. Nobody associated with the bank was charged. Now they did reference some ongoing investigations that are open on a hundred or so of the bank customers, but that's got nothing to do with the bank because they already investigated the bank and found that the bank did nothing wrong. Now they're investigating some customers. Well, maybe the customers did nothing wrong, but a hundred customers out of 10,000 accounts, big deal. But even if a few of the bank's customers evaded their taxes, what difference does that make if the bank didn't help them? Large banks have paid billions of dollars in fines for violating anti-money laundering laws Yet those banks are still in business. As a matter of fact, while I'm talking about crypto, Coinbase was just fined $50 million for violating anti-money laundering laws, and they agreed to spend another $50 million to beef up their anti-money laundering compliance. My bank was investigated for money laundering and wasn't fined at all. Why weren't we fined? Because we didn't help people launder money. In fact, we went above and beyond in our efforts to prevent customers from using my bank. From laundering money. That's why we turned down so many accounts. We had about 27,000 account applications since we moved the bank to Puerto Rico, and we turned down 75% of them flat. They never got to open the account. And then the other 25% that we allowed to open up an account, we closed about 90% of those accounts because they did something we didn't like shortly after they opened the account. Now, most of the accounts that we closed probably didn't belong to criminals. There probably wasn't any money laundering or tax evasion, but we didn't want to take any chances. If anything looked a little suspicious, if there was any I that wasn't dotted or T that wasn't crossed, we shut the account down because we didn't take any chances. We knew the type of microscope that we were under. I mean, that's the irony of this whole thing, because one of the reasons that I was targeted by the IRS and targeted... By 60 Minutes was because of my outspoken criticism of all these anti-money laundering laws, which I believe are a violation of privacy and a violation of our constitutional rights, and my criticism of the income tax. The guys at 60 Minutes, they just assumed that because I was critical of these laws that I was helping my customers break them. It was actually the opposite. Because I was so critical of these laws, I felt compelled to do an extra good job of making sure we were compliant because I knew I was raising my profile. You see, if I really wanted to help people evade taxes and launder money, the last thing I would wanna do is criticize the very laws that I was breaking. I would wanna be as low key as possible and I wouldn't wanna say anything to antagonize the regulators and call attention to myself. The reason I was willing to do it is because I knew that our compliance was top notch. Was it perfect? No. It's impossible to be perfect. They can always find little things that you did wrong. But overall, the bank did an excellent job, and that's why we weren't shut down for money laundering or tax evasion. That's why we weren't fined for those things. We were shut down supposedly for the technicality of not having enough capital, even though regulators had several viable alternatives that would have allowed additional capital to come in and for the bank to remain in business. But the bottom line is government regulators waste all of their resources going after honest businessmen, whereas the criminals have free reign. And not only is that not going to change with more regulation, it's actually going to make the problem worse because more honest people are going to be forced out of business, leaving the field more wide open for the criminals. And so while the big banks are actually violating these anti-money laundering laws, They're still in business. They just get fined, but they're allowed to stay in business. Whereas my bank, which wasn't violating the laws at all, I get put out of business. That's the type of double standard you get from government. And again, I was targeted mainly because of my outspoken political views. And you don't want to empower government with a weapon that it can use to silence its critics. Because the most important reason for freedom of speech is freedom to criticize the government. Because if you can criticize government, then it's less likely to be corrupt. It's less likely to be tyrannical if you can call attention to what they're doing wrong. But if you can silence your critics, if you can put your critics out of business, then it makes it a lot easier for a corrupt, tyrannical government to continue and get more corrupt and more tyrannical.